And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm your host, Harmony. If you've listened to this show before, you may remember that Maggie, my absent but never forgotten co-host, and I identify as anti-capitalist, and have been interested in exploring leftist philosophies on the podcast. We've talked a little bit about Marx and socialist theory, but to be honest, reading old, dry texts by old, dry white men is really arduous for me and unenjoyable. So instead, throughout this season, I've collected a bunch of texts that center the voices of women from various cultural contexts that question capitalism and are embedded with leftist theory. Last episode, I spoke with Rafia Zakaria, the author of Against White Feminism, which is a book that questions the Western capitalist narratives of feminism and centers the perspectives of feminists who exist outside of Western capitalism and who are marginalized by it. The book we're primarily looking at today is called Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall. And like Rafia's book, Kendall recenters the feminist narrative, this time focusing primarily on the experiences of black and brown women in the United States. I think these two texts pair well together. They both rely on personal experience interspersed with quantitative evidence. Against White Feminism focuses globally, and Rafia's personal narrative is lighter as she re-examines our historical understanding of feminism. Hood Feminism centers on the issues U.S. women face every day. Mickey Kendall uses her own personal anecdotes more readily, and then connects them to a larger context by using statistics. In the chapter, How to Write About Black Women, Kendall points out the patronizing tone white society uses when discussing the plights of black women. On page 80, she writes, What started as an internal philosophy post-slavery to uplift the race by correcting the bad traits of poor and working-class Black people has now evolved into one of the hallmarks of what is expected of Black American women. Propriety has become a governing philosophy in media, the workplace, and the academy, especially for Black women as they age. It is a societal expectation that centers on managing the behavior of black people, largely black women, who have otherwise been neglected in a society that only wants to offer opportunity to those who have been approved by gatekeepers. Kendall is centering herself and establishing her authority as she does so. She makes it clear that she's here to own her blackness. In Hood Feminism, readers are forced to view Black women in a comprehensive light. 
Like Rafia's decolonization of feminism globally, Kendall decolonizes our perception of African-American women's experiences. This was my second read of Hood Feminism. The first time around, I was surprised by how much I resonated with the need for feminism to open up dialogues about issues that working-class women face. A lot of what Kendall describes from healthcare, to single motherhood, to domestic violence are issues that have affected my life in some capacity. And if we were to focus on the way they affect black and brown women and offer meaningful support, I know much of the trauma my family has faced would be also eradicated as a result. On page 148, Kendall writes, Poverty is an apocalypse in slow motion, inexorable and generational. Sometimes a personal apocalypse, sometimes one that ruins a whole community. It isn't a single event of biblical proportions, but it is a series of encounters with one or more of the fabled four horsemen. When politicians talk about the working class and the Rust Belt, we can hear that they understand the consequences of long-term poverty. They can grasp that it isn't a moral failing or a personal failing, but instead the consequences of bad policy and limited opportunity colliding over time. But when it comes to the inner city, suddenly the morality of poverty must be debated. The idea that working class people live there suddenly vanishes despite the city functions relying on those populations. Voter suppression collides with voter disinterest to further the disenfranchisement of residents. It's this recipe that lends itself to the political landscape in America and elsewhere trending further and further to the right, where the belief in bootstrapped logic dominates policy making even in the Democratic Party. My experiences in poverty were closer to, though not exactly, the American Rust Belt than the inner city. Though my experiences were radically different from Kendall's, in part because of my whiteness, the fact that my mother always chose places to live where there were well-funded resources for low-income people, which is a privilege in itself, and because I had the privilege of having one middle-class parent, I spent the first 14 years of my life living below the poverty line. I also had the opportunity to go to college at 18 and now graduate school at 26, and so it should be no surprise that the majority of my friends are people who grew up in some type of middle-class household. Occasionally, however, when we're swapping childhood stories or talking about our views on money, it becomes painfully apparent how underserved my family was despite our many privileges when comparing it with my friends. This time, I had the opportunity to read Hood Feminism after speaking to Rafia Zakaria, and my conversation with her introduced me to a few new terms that helped me read hood feminism through a new lens. And now I'd like to move on to a brand new segment called Academia, where I make a concerted effort to attempt to contextualize some of the theories and philosophies I'll be referencing throughout this episode. Reading white feminism introduced me to a new definition of whiteness. 
Whiteness is not construed as a biological category, but as a set of practices and ideas that have emerged from the bedrock of white supremacy, itself the legacy of empire and slavery. Sakaria writes on page 208 of Against White Feminism. If you're anything like me, you may have noticed a plethora of videos popping up on your TikTok feed directed at white people and informing us that a part of our anti-racist work needs to be decolonizing our personal histories. I've been completely divorced from my pre-American cultures and histories because though I'm descended from mostly pale people, my immigrant ancestors needed to assimilate into whiteness. My biological grandfather, who's likely only in his 70s, changed his Polish last name from Burkowski to an English name, Birch, because he was worried his Polish heritage would hurt his golf career. In a 2010 interview for the Du Bois Review, Social Science Research on Race, Nell Irvin Painter, author of The History of White People, states that the invention of white races didn't come about until 1795 in the Enlightenment era. Irish people used to be referred to as dark, not because they have darker skin, but because their Celtic heritage was considered more primitive and therefore less white. Following the 14th Amendment in 1868, which stated that citizens could be either white or black, the U.S. created a universal binary when it comes to racial identity. Immigrants from Asian and Middle Eastern countries would have had to naturalize as black, Painter said. All this to say, whiteness is arbitrary and defined solely by being an in-group. Though those of us with light skin hold power because of our white classification, the power is slippery and depends on the subjugation of people of color. Another theory we need to talk about is critical race theory. I'm 26 and was introduced to some of the concepts of critical race theory in undergrad, but never given an explicit definition. Hood feminism and against white feminism both rely heavily on critical race theory as an underpinning argument. Critical race theory comes from a variety of scholars, but is most talked about in conjunction with Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality. In a 2019 article for Vox called The Intersectionality Wars, the author Jane Poston states that critical race theory was developed in the 1980s and 90s to discuss how race as a social construct is embedded into American laws. Poston writes that prior to these scholars, the idea that laws in a post-civil rights era could be intrinsically racist was seen as irrational. Crenshaw developed our definition of intersectionality in 1989. In the article Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, Crenshaw examined three legal cases to point out that the law didn't have the capacity to view black women as both black and woman. This concept is important for hood feminism because it showcases the way in which white feminism favors people who have the most power. Against white feminism, of course, talks about this too and argues that by allowing the prioritization of white women, Feminism does nothing to uproot power structures and does not support politics that would promote equality. 
Now we're moving on to another segment based off of the ideas I've just presented here called The Personal is Political, in which I examine how these books are affecting my own personal life philosophies and what I'm going to take from them. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you may have caught on to the fact that when Maggie and I speak about activism, even including anti-racist actions, she has a tendency to lean toward a we-do-the-thing-because-it's-the-right-thing-to-do attitude, while I am pretty transparent about my own selfishness. I've been asked a few times by other white women if it's okay that their activism isn't centered around black and brown people. I always have difficulty responding because A, I'm no authority on black and brown lives or activism, and B, it's difficult to articulate why we should care about other people other than defaulting to because it's the right thing to do, which seems to be what these women are wrongfully asking me permission to disregard. Reading Hood Feminism this time around, I've finally crafted what I think is an appropriate response for both them and myself. I'm not concerned about the rights of black and brown people and women only out of selflessness. I'm not concerned simply because racism affects my black and brown friends. I have a personal stake in this fight. We all do. When we allow the dehumanization of one person or a group of people, we make it easier to become dehumanized ourselves. My experiences in poverty were different from Kendall's, but housing and food insecurity, along with the myriad of other issues those in poverty face, are issues no one should have. Denying someone the right to be sheltered or fed is to deny their humanity and their right to existence. On page 148, Kendall writes, Dehumanization is the first step in justifying voting against the rights of other people. This is true here in the United States and everywhere else. When you have the kind of military power that this country boasts, voting solely on personal interests with no concern for the wider impact is inherently selfish. And in the case of voting for white supremacy, it's inherently self-loathing because whatever consequences other communities face will eventually land at your door too. We all need this book because feminism currently erases the voices and needs of black and brown women, and because that erasure ends up affecting us all. As Kendall writes on page 198, feminism can't afford to prioritize supporting whiteness over actively combating racist and misogynistic policies that will end up hurting everyone. Let's talk about the Texas abortion ban. In case you've been living under a rock the past few weeks, here's the deal. Texas outlawed abortion after six weeks of becoming pregnant. Because periods work in 28-day cycles and fluctuate often, most women are unable to determine if they're even pregnant before six weeks. Perhaps even more terrifying is that private citizens are now able to sue abortion clinics, and subjecting clinics to the cost of lawsuits is a surefire way to shut them down. The Supreme Court decided not to take up this case, making both a ban on abortion after six weeks 
and lawsuits from private citizens on abortion clinics admissible for other states. At least for now. When this news broke, I was surprised by the lack of response I saw from angry Twitter activists and my friends on social media. Now there is a response, but most of the responses I've seen are focused on sympathy for the woman in Texas. The woman in Texas certainly deserve our sympathy, but I'm unsure if the public at large realizes what this ruling means for the bodily autonomy of all people capable of giving birth in the U.S. I live in New York State, a famously blue state. As of 2017, we had 252 facilities capable of performing abortions, according to the Guttmacher Institute. Compare that to the 22 facilities in the state of Texas in 2019 as reported by NPR. If Roe v. Wade were to be rendered irrelevant or overturned, it's unlikely that I'd be unable to find an abortion clinic if I needed one. Except, what was a constitutional right for women in the United States for the past 48 years has been taken away. Except, though access to abortion has increased in New York State in recent years, so have pro-life tactics such as fake abortion clinics, of which there are over 120 in New York State, according to ProTruth.org. Even on January 1st, 2021, a law was passed restricting abortion after a fetus is determined to be viable, the exception being for women who could die after giving birth or who could experience severe harm in terms of their health, according to the Guttmacher Institute. That takes about six months for most pregnancies. What happens to New York State in 30 years once it becomes more and more politically popular to pass abortion restrictions? In Hood Feminism, Kendall describes her horrific experience with a miscarriage and subsequent abortion. She argues that feminism's focus on abortion rights means little without any focus on the larger structural inequalities of healthcare. Not only do many women go without care because healthcare in the U.S. is stupidly expensive, but black women are less likely to receive quality care. We know that black mothers in the United States die at three to four times the rate of white mothers. One of the widest racial disparities in women's health and that personal wealth does not protect black mothers from that higher risk. Kendall writes on page 174. Kendall also highlights health care disparities for disabled individuals, incarcerated people, and trans people, which showcases the way intersectionality underpins this book. By refusing to focus on anything outside of abortion access, feminism is failing women. At the end of the day, how many wealthy, white, cis, non-disabled women are there? It certainly can't be a majority. Kendall also outlines a brief history of eugenics and forced sterilizations in the U.S. Experiments made on marginalized populations and forced sterilizations are just more assaults on bodily autonomy. 
by feminism's refusal to fight for women who continually receive poor health care or who are forced into sterilization like prisoners, by not acknowledging the right to medical care for trans people, we say it's okay to assault people's bodily autonomy. We deny bodily autonomy as a human right, or we state that some aren't worth thinking of as humans. Let's switch gears and move on to a new segment called Which Bitch? where we outline action steps to crafting a better, more equitable world and highlight a hint of magic inspired by this episode's reading. So here are your action steps. Number one, educate yourself. There are a number of tools and books that can help us understand white supremacy and race. Reading Hood Feminism is a great start. I'll also share a list of tools and resources I found following the George Floyd protests that have been helpful to me. Dr. Akila Cadet also developed a text and YouTube-based lesson plan called The Ally Nudge that teaches the basics of the Black Lives Matter movement and offers subscribers action steps. I recommend that as well. Number two, talk about race. I have ADHD and a bad habit of putting my foot in my mouth. So I get firsthand how scary it is to confront race and talk about it, especially when language is ever evolving and you're still learning about race yourself. I'm reminded of the quote commonly attributed to Maya Angelou, though I for one was unable to trace it back to its original source. The quote is, do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. We have to normalize talking about race because we live in a world where race is institutionalized. And if we pretend that it's not, we allow it to continue. Three, when you have time and money, donate it. Four, build anti-racist actions into your everyday. I'm not going to lie to you all. I'm a constantly exhausted by late-stage capitalism. I don't feel like I have the capacity to fight the good fight. But I do have a voice, and I do have power. At RGBC, we try to be mindful about what media we recommend and what media we analyze. Because we don't want to promote white supremacist voices or concepts, I carry this sentiment with me into my work as a librarian. What sorts of collections do I choose to curate? Do I want my students learning about prison abolition? I can make that happen. What books do I choose to promote? Am I centering whiteness in my practice? These are small measures that seem relatively easy. But the truth is that we live in a world that centers whiteness, and so making myself ask and evaluate my own biases is hard but important work. Lastly, I'd like to read a poem by Felita Hicks, author of The Hood Witch, a new collection of poetry published in 2019. So I guess not that new. It's called For the White Girl in the Poetry Workshop Who Says I Don't Belong Here. I cut out all the parts you wouldn't like about this, decided to leave only the femur, the fibula, the thorax, my neck, swiveling, 
skull, a clicking vertebrae, the spine, or the tail, what is left of it anyways, my knees still bleeding fresh. For you, my sweet, the jaw grind, my ground teeth, chatter, chatter, chit, chit. I sleep with too many words in my mouth. Mouth, in, the catcher, the dream catcher in my chest, the left shoe, the wrong foot, the note, read for further instructions, a single tube of bitch, the lipstick, my dear, my ruptured lung, the slinky, a pasture, green, a pen like a pink tooth, I wish you ink that bleeds, a well, black and fat, a hungry thing, the hand, the Saturn, the binary four, the digitus medius, for you, my sweet. That's all for now, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope that you read the book or are considering reading it. Remember, you can always get it at your local library. There's also a great audiobook version, which is what I used to read it twice, read by Mickey Kendall herself. Next week, you're going to get a voicemail from Maggie, and then I'll be joining you again with the book, Witches, Midwives, and Nurses by Barbara Ehrenreich. We're going to try to kick off spooky season a little bit early with some semi-leftist, semi-anarchist, radical texts. And uh, after that, I will go full spooky and we're going to take a little bit of a break and breather from our leftist texts and just dive into spooky goodness. All right, that's it, folks. See you next time. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.